The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's uh, open our Bibles, if you would please, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this evening we enter into the sixth area of our study of living for Jesus. And thus far we've been through discipleship and obedience. We've been through worship uh, and communication. We've talked about prayer, communication. Uh, Our last study was about living as a learner. And that was learning how to study God's Word and to make the Word a consistent part of our lives. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we remember that that is the same as being filled with the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit works through God's Word. And so to be filled with the Spirit is the same as being filled with the Word of God. Now, in our study tonight and for these next few weeks, I want us to go into a a study of exploring the, the growth process or the maturation process in the Christian life. And, of course, we would be talking about our sanctification And our sanctification is the work that the Holy Spirit does in making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It increases the love that we have for God and the love that we have for each other. And we grow in the grace of God and thereby we become like our Lord and Savior. Now the growing Christian is one who develops a Christ-like character. And so whenever we're talking about holiness or sanctification or growth or maturing then the end game of that is always that we would end up with the characteristics that are found in the life of Christ. Now, the growth process uh, is stated in an interesting way in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, where the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Now what you're looking at there is a very highly debated passage. But without exploring all of the controversies that are in that passage, the simplest concept that we can develop out of those verses is that God does not want us to stay on one level in our spiritual lives. That we always ought to be advancing. Now here the writer of Hebrews says that it's not good for a Christian to stay at the bottom, at the very basics of the Christian faith. That we are to climb higher. And in this case is what we see here. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is telling the people that they need to move on from what they learned in the Old Testament, Old Testament doctrines, and they need to develop what's taught in the New Testament that increases the knowledge of what the Old Testament doctrines are all about, and that's learning about Jesus Christ. Then there's another way of stating this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 2, where Paul says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. And then in Hebrews 5, verse 12, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And I think that you can see in both of those scriptures that those are places of encouragement 
that we're not to be content to stay on the entry level of the Christian life. But we are to progress, we're to keep learning, we're to keep maturing in the faith. Now, spiritual growth is not instantaneous. No more than physical growth is instantaneous. You can't start out on the milk level that it's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 3 or in Hebrews 5.12. You can't start there on the milk level and then in a very short amount of time, 30 days, 60 days, develop into the level of a pastor and a teacher. And I might just add one other little caveat to that statement, that there are some pastors and teachers that are unfortunately not capable of taking you to another level because they're stuck on their level themselves. Uh, and it's a tragedy, I think, that there are so many churches that are zoned in to only one or two areas of, of, Christian, of the Christian faith, whether that be the soul-winning question or whether it be dress issues and things like that. But churches get stuck in those particular areas and they never move people beyond those rudimentary doctrines of the faith. And I think that our text verses here in First Peter, or Second Peter rather, and the ones that we've just read, these others, call for more in the Christian life. That Christians are to be mature. And we'll understand that a little bit better as we go through these lessons. Now let me return for just a moment to the thought that Christian maturity is not an instantaneous process. And I know if, if, if you're in the middle of this and, and you're just getting, you're right there on the ground level and you're trying to learn more about the Christian faith, more about what your church teaches and what we believe, that when you're on the bottom level, it can get discouraging at times. It can get very discouraging because you think that you're not learning fast enough. Uh, I remember when uh, we first started the fundamentals class that there were folks that came in with the lesson in their workbook completed and I think that they thought that getting that workbook completed meant that, well, this is, this is going to be kind of easy. It's going to be kind of easy, and we'll just breeze along through this. And so the first few weeks that we had fundamentals class, there were about 75 or 80 people that came. And then about lesson three or four, the numbers started to dwindle about half. And you wonder, uh, what did the people learned. Well, I suppose the thing that they learned was they discovered that it wasn't going to be easy. That learning the doctrines of the faith, learning what's in the Bible, is not a simple thing like just filling out works, uh, filling out blanks in a workbook. That the workbook, the only thing that that was to do for us was to set a course. It was to get us headed in the right direction. And once that course is set, what we intended to do was to sail out into deeper waters. And to get more into the de in depth into the doctrines of God's Word. And I know that there were uh, people that came and, uh, after we got that course set. And there was a lot of confusion and discouragement about what we were learning. These things don't come easily. And I don't promise you that learning these things comes easily. But I am impressed with this. That we have had many who've stayed right in there and they filled out those workbooks and you come and you take notes and you're learning, some, you're learning some greater things in the Word of God. So what happens when a person dedicates himself to that and he wants to really mature in the faith, that as we learn, the pieces of the puzzle of all these Bible doctrines begin to fit as they should. And that is exactly what we're doing. What we're doing here is building a puzzle. And I promise you that when we get through with it, and when all the pieces fit together, that what we find underneath of that is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You put all of it together, and you get a better picture of what the Lord Jesus looks like. 
So by studying the Word of God, growing in the grace and knowledge of God, Christ is revealed to us. And I think that that is the real importance of this. That many Christians hold a piece here, and they hold a piece there, and, and they don't have enough of the pieces to put together to really tell who Christ is. And so there isn't any maturity because there's not that constant pursuit to find out about him. And here's the thing about it, folks. The Bible never says that that's okay. The Bible never tells us that it's okay to be that kind of a Christian. And the Bible never entertains that it's all right for some people to lag behind and be deficient and incomplete in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the command in Scripture that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Now, some people think, well, I'm, I'm saved from hell, and that's all that I need to know. That's good enough. No, that's not good enough. The willfully ignorant Christian is a selfish, sinning Christian. Because Christianity is supposed to be about rooting out the sinfulness that's in our lives and replacing that with supreme love for Jesus Christ. When we learn about Him, when we know more about Him, the love for our Savior and what God has done for us increases. And so the Christian who just knows that I'm saved from hell and that's enough, what he's actually doing is putting the emphasis on himself rather than putting the emphasis on Jesus Christ. So just knowing you're saved from hell, that is not enough. Now maturing in the faith increases our ability to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what I don't have is I don't have a glory meter. I can't really measure how much glory that you're given to Christ, but I know this, that if we had such a thing as a glory meter, there would be a lot of Christians who barely register on the scale. And so many are still babies. They're still hanging around on the milk level. They're not maturing in the faith. But it takes time. It's not going to come in six months. It won't come a year but I promise you this, that if you stay in and if you want to grow, the growth is enjoyable. And there'll be times when you'll have these wow moments when you see that it all comes together and you say, I understand now. And now the word has been opened up to me and it feels really good to know Christ in a better way. Now, another thing is we open our Bibles to Second Peter 1 is that growing in Christ is a step-by-step -step process. But I want to warn you as we read these scriptures, and we probably won't get far enough into them tonight, uh, as we read these, I don't want you to misinterpret this particular passage. Because when you get down to verses 5, 6, and 7, you'll see there what does look like steps. It says there that we have faith, and to faith we are to add virtue, and to our virtue we are to add knowledge, and then to add temperance. And what that looks like is that we're going through a step-by-step -step process. That when you master one of those, then you're ready to move on to the next one. And so you spend a month practicing patience, and then you're ready to move on to godliness. But it doesn't work that way. You can't practice patience without godliness. And you can't have godliness without patience. These all have to be in process at the same time. Let me give you an example. If you look there in verse number 6, it says to add patience to temperance. Well, temperance means self-control. So how are you going to have patience without self-control? And how can you have self-control without patience? I have experience in this. You try that with seven grandkids. If you don't have patience, you're going to be out of control. And you're going to murder your grandkids. That's what will that's happen if you don't have patience. 
So all of these are things that have to be in process at the same time. I think it's kind of like fundamentals class. Uh, we started in fundamentals studying the importance of the Bible. And so for weeks, that's where we started with. We did a survey of the Bible. But then our lesson about the Holy Spirit, the one who guides us in our study of the Bible, that didn't come to a year, till a year later. But we're learning one doctrine at a time, aren't we? So does that mean that we didn't have the Holy Spirit with us the whole time that we were going through the, the study of what the Bible has to say and that we didn't add the Holy Spirit until six months or a year are up and then we can study Him and now we understand that we've added the Holy Spirit to what we're doing? Now do you understand what I'm trying to say here? We, we had the Holy Spirit the whole time that we were doing that. We, we began to understand and got knowledge of the Bible, and we didn't add the Holy Spirit to our knowledge a year later. So all the things that we see here in Second Peter chapter 1, all of these graces, these are not step by step. These are all things that have to be in process at the same time. We mature in all of them. They all work together. And it takes time to get the bugs out, time to iron all of the kinks out, so all of this works together as it should. Well, that's somewhat of a long introduction, but I think it's a necessary one. We are Christians that are going on to maturity. We are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But before we begin the text, let's just turn over one page, if you would, to chapter 3 and verse number 18. And here Peter says, 2 Peter three eighteen, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And you might just want to circle or underline the word grow. Young's literal translation says, increase in grace and knowledge. Grow, increase. That does not mean stay right where you are. That does not mean it's okay to be on the same level that you were on the day that you got saved. No, he says we are to grow, we are to increase. And if you're not growing then you're out of compliance with God's design for your life. And what is that design? Well, Peter just told us there in that 18th verse, it is to glorify Christ both now and forever. Now, one quick question then that I hope that you'll be able to get before we get into our text. What major thing do you have to do in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? What would be the major thing that you have to do? All right, you're holding up the Bible. Some say study the Bible. That is exactly right. You have to study the Word. Now, as I told you in the last section, we're never going to get very, very far away from the Word of God. No matter where we are in the Christian life, no matter what subject that we're discussing, we're going to get all of our information from the Word of God. And so that last lesson, living as a learner, what that, what that was doing is just simply laying the groundwork for this lesson. This one is on sanctification. And so if you didn't get the lesson on learning, then you're not going to get the lesson on growing. Because growth doesn't happen unless we give good attention to the Word. Well, finally, let's go here to 2 Peter chapter 1. When I say finally, that doesn't mean we're close to the end. That just means I'm finally going to get into the message. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Now, what I'm not going to do right now is read the whole text. What I want to do is start with verse number 1. And I'm just going to make a few points as we go down through this. The outline is not going to start until the next time, next week. So what we're doing here is just gathering some thoughts to get some momentum 
going into verses 5 through 7, where Peter talks about these graces that we are to add to our lives. So we begin with 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I thought about this reading that first verse, that this would be a very, very good time for us to begin a study of First and Second Peter. Very good time for us to do that, but we're not going to do that now. But we do look at this and we see, well, yes, this is an epistle written by Peter. We know who Peter is. Peter's the author of this. And we know Peter and the kind of man that, the character that we saw of him developed in our study of Matthew, that Peter was a very impetuous disciple. Peter was one who often spoke without thinking, and that led many times to Peter putting a sized hen shoe in his mouth. But here we see Peter, many, many years later, and here is a man who has much more maturity. Here he gives us words that are very carefully thought out. These are words of wisdom, words that are spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he'd learned to let the Holy Spirit be the teacher and the guide for him. And so he penned these words with the Holy Spirit as his teacher under that inspiration, giving us what God would have us to know. Now we look next, we see Peter is the author, and we look next at the word servant, that Peter was a servant. And you remember in the Matthew studies that Peter was not much into the servant mode. That Peter was the brash leader, always trying to be out in front. He wasn't much of a follower. He wasn't somebody who had very much humility. But what he had, what we see here is that time and maturity have made Peter a much different person. The word servant here, that's a very important word for Peter. He is now a servant, which means that he's now more like Christ. Here's someone who has grown. It's Jesus who taught Peter in John chapter 13 that he needed to wash other disciples' feet and not always be stepping on them, trying to get out in front of them. He learned to be a servant. He learned to be like Jesus. That is to be a servant. And here we find Peter not ashamed to identify himself that way. He is a servant of Jesus Christ, a lowly servant. So he's growing up in his Christianity, and oddly enough, in growing up in Christianity, that was taking him lower on the scale of his own self-importance. And we see this because you notice that the next word that comes behind this is the word apostle. So he is a servant, and it comes before being apostle. So he's not really trading on a position here. And I think uh, that early in Peter's career, that what he would have done, he would have put apostle in front of servant. And think about that. There are only 12 men that were of Peter's type. There are only 12 that walked and talked with Jesus and knew him intimately. Only 12 in all of the history of the world. And that made those 12 men a truly elite group. There's, there's no, no doubt about that. And if you're disposed to those kinds of things, apostle becomes a title for bragging rights. Peter carried a lot of weight with that title, didn't he? Be an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are no others but these men. None like these men. And so the next time that you see someone kiss the Pope's ring, think about how Peter became a humble man. Peter was not a Pope. Peter would never have allowed anybody to bow to him. Oh, you can check that out in Acts chapter 10 when he went to preach to Cornelius. 
Cornelius wanted to bow to him, wanted to worship Peter. Peter said, no, you're not going to do that. He said, stand up, I am a man. So Peter preached the gospel to another man. But you contrast that to the Pope, a man who has a throne in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And I'll tell you that Peter couldn't have been a pope because he would never get that close, never getting close, I should say, to such a blasphemous display. And you go into that place and you find statues of Peter. One, one in particular, there are many statues of Peter there. And I don't think that Peter would have been too happy about any of them that are there. But there's one particular statue that has a toe that they have to repair regularly. And that's because there are millions of pilgrims that pass through the Vatican uh, through St. Peter's Basilica, and they rub that toe, and they kiss the toe of Peter, that statue of Peter. There isn't a, a, a more pure, a pure form of idolatry than that. Oh, I remember when I was there and I kissed the toe, that it was just about as thin as paper. But you don't find a Peter like that in the Scriptures. Peter was too mature for that. Peter had become too much like Christ to try to steal authority and glory from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then going on in verse number 1, he says, To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now part of maturing in the faith is being able to read the Bible and to spot great doctrinal truths. You can read through the Scriptures and there standing out in front of you is great doctrine. And here in this very short statement, there are three major doctrines that are taught. Now, I want you to see these because, as I say, you mature in the faith, you'll be able to spot them. And if you've already seen them, then I say, wonderful, that's great because we're making progress. The first one is found in the word obtain. It says, they had obtained like precious faith. And I want you to notice here that Peter did not say, you believed. Oh, they had believed. All of them had believed. They were believers in Christ. But he doesn't say that you have believed. He says you have obtained your faith. And that's a great word because what that word originally means is something that has been assigned to you. Something that has been bestowed upon you. And so in other words, what we see being taught here in just those few words is that faith is a gift from God. That we don't really have anything to do with our faith. That God is the one who gives it. And you can tie that in with the thought of 1 Peter 1 verse 2 where there he wrote, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And what you find there is Peter and Paul's doctrine of predestination and how that God bestows salvation as an act of his will and not of ours. And this is why faith has to come from God. Faith, uh, God has to give our faith because this is... His intention to bestow upon us because we are the chosen people of God. So, in other words, that faith is a gift of God. They don't have anything to do with it. Now, the second thing that we find, the truth there, is righteousness, where he says, through the righteousness of God. Now, what he means by righteousness is very highly debatable. There are some say that it refers to the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so, Peter would be speaking here of their justification. So we would see the doctrine of justification in the passage. John Gill makes an interesting point about that. He says, no, this is the righteousness of impartiality. In other words, this is a gift, a gift of God that is bestowed not on any favorite race of people. 
There, are, there is no favoritism here. Jews and Gentiles alike receive this faith, not inclusively, but indiscriminately. And that's because the Bible teaches that God is not a respecter of persons. Now, some people don't really understand that very well, that phrase that God is not a respecter of persons. And what it really teaches is that salvation is not inclusive individually, but it is indiscriminate among all races and kindreds and tongues. I had this conversation with someone just a few weeks ago. The discussion was about John 3.16 and 1 John 2.2 2, and about the use of the word world in both of those passages. And this we know, that God is not the Savior of the world, meaning all people in the world individually, because we know that all people in the world individually aren't saved. But we do know that he is the Savior of all people in the world indiscriminately. And that's because he's not a respecter of any person. And then we see there's another third, or there's a third great truth here. And the third truth is that Jesus is God. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there is a statement of Christ's divinity. It's also a statement of his equality with God the Father. That the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ are one and the same. It's the same holiness, it is the same justice, the same goodness, and all the other attributes that are in God. Now you look at that and you see the righteousness of Christ, righteousness of God compared. There can't be a separation in them. They have to be exactly the same thing. And Peter is showing that as well. And then we go on to verse number 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And here we find the theme of what we're studying. This is what sets the tone. How does God give a Christian more grace and peace? And I want you to think about that for a minute. More grace and more peace. How do you get that? Well, as you think about this, you think about when you got saved, and I think all of us would have to say, in our understanding at least, we had a small measure of God's grace. And we did at least have a small measure of peace. That, that's to be increased, but when we first get saved, we have a small measure, a small understanding, we should say, of grace. A small understanding of the peace that we have in Christ. But we remember that when you got saved, that the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. And when he came to live in you, you got all of the Holy Spirit that there is to get. That you don't get the Holy Spirit in doses. That you don't get a little bit of him here and a little bit of him there. And as you live your Christian life a little bit longer, then more of the Holy Spirit comes in. No, when you got saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit there is to get. Now the problem, though, with an immature Christian is we don't actually recognize all that we have. And we don't until we begin to submit and mature. And then what God does, he begins to open up the treasure of what's already there. And he makes you realize more of what you already have. That every area of submission that you give to God, you see the Holy Spirit working in that area to increase your faith, increase the grace, the knowledge of Christ. The grace is there, it's already there, but it's untapped. There's a song that says, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. And we think, well, how does God do that? 
How does God give more grace? Is it that God has this great reservoir of grace that's up in heaven? And then when you need it, what God does, He opens up the floodgates of heaven and then He begins to pour out His grace on you. I don't think that's the way to happen. it happens. I think that the grace is already there. That all the grace is already there on the inside of you, living and, and abiding there in the Holy Spirit. And as we yield to the Spirit's control of our life, what He begins to do is let that grace flow out into our lives. That's when we begin to realize the grace that actually is, is, is actually there. Now we notice how, how grace and peace are multiplied, which means that it comes in greater quantities. He says, how? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Another statement of his deity. And I don't want to keep beating that point, but this is exactly what Scripture does. You read it, and it never lets you forget this. He never lets you forget who Jesus is. He is truly God. And then how many ways... Can the author say that the only way that there is to grow, the only way to get more grace and more peace into your life is through God's Word. It's to increase the knowledge of Christ. And that knowledge comes only one way, through the Word. So we keep saying it over and over and over again. So we have to keep telling it because the Bible keeps telling us this. It seems that no matter where we go, what we talk about in the Christian life, we come back to the Word of God. This reminds me of what Brother Wong had to say when, when he was here and he talked about performance-based Christianity. And he says, what good is performance-based Christianity without closeness to Christ? Without actually knowing who Christ is. And what he was telling us, in effect, was what good does it do to push people to turn in their soul-winning reports and to keep beating the streets in order to keep up the numbers that are in the church when you, as the Christian worker, that no one has stopped to ask you, how are you doing? How are you increasing in your knowledge of the Lord Christ? Now, it's hard to tell others about how great that our life in Christ is when we're too immature to experience that life ourselves. So what we have to do is we've got to get back to the Word. We've got to get back as preachers to preaching the Word, studying the Word, expositing the Word, explaining the Word of God. And that's so that when you as a Christian worker sit down and you take your own Bible and you begin to read and study it, that you come away with knowledge of the text that will change your life and will help you to know Christ. And then we look at verse number 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Now, Peter keeps piling truth upon truth. The goal is growing to maturity in Christ. Now, those of you that come to our class on Wednesday nights, and the doctrine at times seems to be confusing, you don't need to worry about that. Or when you sit here and listen to things that I have to say in other services, you don't really need to worry that I can't do this because I'm just not smart enough to understand it. You know why you never have to worry about it? Because nobody is smart enough to understand it. Oh, the richness and the deepness of God's Word can never be plumbed by the human intellect. 1 Corinthians 2 says that only the Holy Spirit can do that for us. The divine power is the only power that can give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And every saved person has that divine power of God in him because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's no Christian 
That has an excuse to come up short in this because we all have the Spirit living in us. So when we get down to verses 5, 6, and 7, how are you going to add the things that Peter says here? How are you going to do that? Well, you're not going to do it by your own power. And the reason that you can't is because your flesh will resist it. Your flesh will resist it with all the strength that it can. And it's not until that divine power of God takes over and... Uh, lead you into this, and by your submission to the Holy Spirit, that power is released into your life, that's the only way that you're going to add these Christian virtues. Now look at some of the words that we have there in 5, 6, and 7. I'm not going to get into it much tonight. But you see patience and godliness, kindness, gentleness, charity. All those words are mentioned as fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. You might not see them in the same form, but they have the same meaning. Now, the Holy Spirit is in you, and the ability to grow is present in everyone that is saved. Now, the key to all of this, the Word of God says, is knowledge. And you see that if you read all of 2 Peter, you'll see knowledge appearing over and over again. A repetition of that word knowledge. Knowledge of the Word is the thing. So you don't really have to be smart. You don't have to be smart. You just need to be yielded to God's Spirit. Now, it takes time to understand it. Because God does not zap people with instant knowledge. And here's a point that I'll I'll make later in the lessons. And that is that God wants you to be involved in your sanctification. And your sanctification is not something that God does alone. Now we're accustomed to hearing this all of the time. Of course we teach that salvation from beginning to end is all about the power of God in our lives. And we think that God does it all. But in our sanctification, God wants us to have a part of that sanctification. It's a process. It's progressive sanctification. We are involved in how that develops. Well, we go on to verse number 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, this verse is as far as we're going to go tonight. Next time, we're going to get into the particulars of the following verses. Then we'll put together the outline. But here we find groundwork for growth. And I think that we need to notice first about verse 4 is that God has given many promises. What is meant by God's promises? Well, whenever you see that in the Scriptures, promises in the Bible, you can just write down beside it, assurance. God cannot lie. And so whenever he makes a promise, that promise is as sure as if it's already happened. You can write assurance by the word promise. I'm reminded of what Romans 8, 29, and 30 says, that all the verbs that are in those verses, did foreknow, did predestinate, called, justified, glorified, all of those are in the past tense. None of those people that Paul wrote to had been glorified, and they still aren't glorified. That's something that takes place with the resurrection of the body, the final glorification. And yet he wrote that, all of that, in the past tense as if it had already happened. Why was he able to do that? Because God made the promise, and the promise can never fail. So how can Paul say it that way? It's because what God said a thousand years ago is the same as if it already happened. What God said is timeless. God is eternal. One day to God is like a thousand years. And so what he promises is an absolute guarantee because he is the immutable 
God. And did you know that if people could just get that through their heads, that they would understand that salvation is absolutely predetermined? And that's because God sees all events as the eternal presence. Eternal present, I should say. And so when it comes to the ability to grow in grace, God promised it would happen. God promised that he would give divine power to enable it. And that divine power is the Holy Spirit that he deposited into the life of every believer. Now notice this amazing statement that Peter makes. He says that we are partakers of the divine nature. That perhaps is one of the most mind-boggling statements in Scripture. I think maybe the, the highest order of things that are difficult for us to understand is how that God could become a man. Oh, that is an exceedingly difficult doctrine. And that's where a lot of people that don't believe in Christianity get hung up. They cannot believe the Incarnation. They can't believe that God became a man. Well, I think pulling right up alongside that in difficulty is this statement, that we could be made partakers of the divine nature. Think about this. How far apart are you and God? How far apart are you? We are so far apart from God that in the being of our existence, our spheres can't interact. We can't go where God is. We can't cross the great divide between us and God. We can never approach God. And that's because God is limitless. God is beyond the bounds of the created universe. He's too far above us because of his holiness. That truth is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that God and humans are on a different wavelength. And it's impossible in our natural state to interact with God. And it's a very simple principle in one way that the Bible describes as spiritual death. Spiritual death means that we cannot cross the divide into spiritual life. And why people don't see the clarity of that in passages like 1 Corinthians 2 and Ephesians chapter 2 is just stunning. We're not on God's wavelength because of spiritual death. And God happens to be the only one that can connect you to him. And the way that he connects you to him is to give you spiritual life. And that connection takes place by the Holy Spirit through the mediation of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are born from above. We're born not by what we do. There's nobody that ever birthed themselves. We're born from above. And that's when God equips us with a new nature. We escape the old nature, the corruption of the world, through this new nature that is implanted in us by that regeneration. We have the new nature of God implanted in us. And we can never connect with God until we have that. We can never do what spiritually alive people can do, and that is to repent and believe. Those two things, repentance and faith, take life. And we don't have it until God gives it. Now here, here's, here's an example. You'll never be able to hook up to a computer network without going through the router. You have to go through the router, or you're not going to see anything that's on the network. Now, maybe some of us in here are too old to understand even what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about hooking up to a network. I think some of the younger people understand this. Um, the router, you might say, is regeneration. 
And that's the way that God hooks us up. We become partakers of the divine nature. And that doesn't mean that we become God. Uh, it just means that when we become partakers of that nature, we have access to everything that is on God's network. And so we have everything that we need to live holy and godly lives. And when we're hooked up through regeneration, that's when we are enabled to be conformed to the image of Christ, as Romans 8.29 promises. But we have to have the key that nobody grows without the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now think about that. that what do you do with the Word after it's been preached? What if you hear the Word and you don't really understand it? What do you do from there? Do you just forget the Word? Do you go out from here and leave the Word behind and you never think about it and you never meditate on it? Do you leave here and the Word stays in the church and then you go out there and fill your mind up with everything else? Now you see, if you, if you are a Christian that expected that you would come to church and the Holy Spirit would zap you with knowledge because you came to a church service, then you're wrong. You can't let me do the work of studying the Word of God for you and then you understand it, then all you need to do is just skate along and be passive in that process. No, if you want to grow in the Word of Christ, you have to let it dwell in you richly. And so when you hear it, you take that word. You meditate on the word. You, you stay in that word. You listen to what's said, apply the word, and I promise that the word of God will come into focus. And what God does, he provides the divine power. And through that divine power, you escape your ignorance. You escape sin. You escape your immaturity. And you do it by following the command to gain more knowledge of Christ. So next time we'll come back to this and we'll talk about how that we mature in the faith. We'll try to get into some of those graces that, that uh, Peter mentions there in those next verses. What does there actually need to be in us to have a mature faith in Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to see as we develop this lesson. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we do ask, Lord, that you would enlighten us with your word that you would help us to grow, help us to be submissive to the Holy Spirit. May we dedicate ourselves to finding out more about you. Lord, that the happiness of our Christian lives, the peace, the contentment, the graces multiply when we know you better. Bless your people, Lord. We're thankful for each one who's here on this holiday weekend. Uh, we know that you'll richly repay them for having come and heard the word of God. So thank you, Lord, for all these things. Bless us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.